2: All right, guys, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. We are going to get to our interview here with Julian Suri here in a little bit. I wanted to pop in and talk about a few things going on in the world of golf before we do that. uh, We won't have a full wrap-up podcast from Firestone, or it doesn't sound like we'll have a full preview uh, for the PGA Championship as well, but I wanted to give a shout-out to JT for his thrilling win at Firestone, the last ever WGC Bridgestone event at Firestone. Not that upset to say goodbye to Firestone, although it's been a place we've had a lot of fun memories with Big Cat. There have been some good tournaments over the years. I think Uh, a change of scenery for these events is definitely a good thing. I don't think TBC Southwind is the answer. Actually, I'm pretty positive that it's not the answer. Uh, We discuss a lot of these things uh, on our live show on Periscope that's on Twitter. You can go back and watch the replay of that. Uh, DJ and Big Randy and I just chatted up about WGCs and everything like that. So if you're looking for that recap, go back into our Twitter feed, and th- that replay is available for pretty much eternity, I think. So um, Georgia Hall, shout out to her for winning the Rico Women's British Open. Uh, she is English and won in her... Home country of England there um, at Royal Lytham and St. Anne's, which was awesome to watch. She was absolutely nail shot. of Final round 67 with kind of like a comfortable bogey on the last. She played even better than that and uh, just played absolutely lights out to win that and win a major championship. That was awesome to watch. The Barracuda hasn't quite wrapped yet as the, at the uh, time of this recording, so don't have a full update on that one. Uh, and we are pumped to roll into the last major championship. Uh, I don't know a ton about Bell Reeve. I've been reading up from Andy uh, over at the Fried Egg, and he doesn't sound too thrilled. They're excited about it. I'm trying my best to go into this with an open mind uh, and uh, kind of soak up the last major of the year. It does sound like this is going to be a Reese Jones special. It's going to be long. It's going to be narrow. They've got big greens, and it should favor the bombers and the ball strikers the best. Again, going in with an open mind. We're gonna we're gonna tackle it. We're gonna come in pretty strong this week with live shows and hopefully a new formatted live show on Wednesday evening, kind of previewing the event as well. So, uh, on that note, without much further ado, uh, I want to give a shout out to our man hashtag Chad uh, at Callaway. He and his wife just welcomed a beautiful baby girl into the world. And as a special gift to them, I told them, listen, you don't even have to worry about sending me over anything today. I'm just going to, I'm going to do the, do the ad all on my own and don't even worry about it. So you're welcome Chad for this. Uh, I and I could pick the topic myself and the topic I chose is I want to talk about the X forged irons from Callaway. I put these in my bag back in April. I was hesitant to do it. I was playing the apex pros before this. And I honestly love them that Chad sent me a set of them. He's like, please just try them. Please try them. I put them in my bag right before we went to Bandon Dunes. Uh, I'm very happy with the decision. I'm honestly probably about a club longer with the uh, with the X-Forge than I was with the Apex Pros. They're about a degree lower in loft. Um, and I've never really been one to seek major distance with irons. But the appeal of blasting three iron and having about nine iron or less in degrees has kind of transformed the way I've thought about this. Uh, The X-Forged irons are more forgiving than a blade, but they deliver plenty of feel. They're a bit offset, and they've got a really thin look from the top. And uh, I was always worried with irons that really launch the ball, how well they get in and out of the turf. But I've had no such issue with these, and they are damn sexy to look at from over top. So I imagine that helps a bit with the confidence when you're standing over one. I'm still struggling a bit to adjust to some of the distances that I'm hitting these balls, especially into the wind. I feel like I need to club up, and I end up flying greens with them. So... Still adjusting, but honestly couldn't be much more impressed with the X-Forge Iron. So for, for more information on those, go to CallawayGolf.com. Uh, and let's get into our interview here with Julian Surrey. For those that aren't that familiar with Julian, he is a American. He's 27 years old. He's playing on the European Tour. He has won on the European Tour. Uh, we talk a bit about his path from Duke University through the mini-tour scene in Florida to the Challenge Tour, towards playing the European Tour. and. will hopefully be the pga tour next year he is definitely a guy you want to get to know he's going to be a guy you're probably going to see on leaderboards next year um and i imagine he's just coming to the forefront of a lot of american golf fans so he's a fun guy to root for he's a bit of a trash talker um so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna pump him up any more than that you'll hear a bit of that as we go on me and randy got a chance to play with him last week at timaquana and uh, we sat down with him in the clubhouse for a podcast interview afterwards so Without further ado, enjoy that, and uh, hopefully we'll be in touch with you guys later this week during the PGA Championship. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast here at Tim Country Club, home turf here with noted sandbagger Julian Surrey. Let's just start it off. I want you to explain to the listeners the entire situation we had at Sawgrass Country Club last week, and then I'll tell the real version after that. But
1: You know, it, I'm usually not used to playing with inferior players, so when I'm... When I'm so pres- everyone else on tour the tour is better than task. you, is that what you're saying? Well, you know, s- substantially inferior. So, you know, when I uh, when I'm presented with the task of stroking somebody that I've one I've never seen, but two also uh, past PGA professional, it's a little bit challenging. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I assumed we were on the same deal from the front to back nine, and then I get labeled as a sandbag. I feel like this has all been kind of, you know retroactively labeled and, and I Retro-active. feel a little bit victimized. It's but.
2: funny that you use that word. You were deciding after the holes were over, if we got strokes on that hole and you were only giving four strokes. You were, you were playing as a plus three and you are the 62nd ranked player in the world. I, think. I just
1: taken three days off after five weeks on the road. I am the victim here. <laughs> I've been...
2: <laughs> you won the money. Uh, we took. We went out today and we got you out here at Timmaquana on the home turf, and I got the proper amount of strokes, and it still didn't matter for the record. Right. but we, we hit the Quan properly today. It we did. Fun. We it did hit the Quan. But... All right, Larry, We're gonna we're gonna start this off. Um, we want to you know kind of get into your background for. So let's just assume that anyone listening to this is not familiar with you at all. So walk us through your background, why you're in Jacksonville, and why you're American playing the European tour.
1: Um, yeah. So kind of, uh, I'd probably say different than most. I was born in New York City. I uh, lived in just outside New York City until I was ten. Um, my uh my parents lived in uh worked in manhattan like i said until i was 10. um and then we moved down to jacksonville my dad got a new job partly but also because i had shown pretty good potential in golf and you know florida was was kind of where you needed to be um so i've lived in the area just south of jacksonville in st augustine uh since i was 10 years old and and kind of progressed um and then ended up going to duke uh, finished that up in 2013, and and was was kind of struggling there for a couple years. Um, started to lose my swing at the end of at the end of my senior year at Duke, and uh, and I'd never had a swing coach my whole life. I'd never had any sort of formal instruction, and and I'd, I'd done all right with some you know somewhat good results at, at college, and I was an All American once, but. Um, when the good was good, it was really good. But when the bad was bad, it, it really hit the fans. So um, and, you know, I was pretty stubborn to kind of see somebody and, and, uh, and so, you know, at the end of 2015, I thought, you know, my game was good enough um, to do the Q school. So I did the European Q school. My rationale for that was, you know, you make it to final stage of Q school.
2: Well, first, before we do that, because I, I, I've tried to do a little notes preparing for this and whatnot, okay. I couldn't find like record of, you said it, you turned pro in 2013. I couldn't find what you were doing in that two-year span. So walk us through what was happening during that that a few-year yeah, span when so, you turned pro.
1: So I turned pro in the fall of 2013, um, did the web.com Q school, missed out on that. Uh, did the Asian tour Q school in January of 2014 in Thailand, missed out on that. Um, so I come back, I'm just playing mini tours. I'm playing w- what was then, uh, the swing thought, um, they've had a million different sponsors, the Hooters. It was the whole old Hooters tour, NGA it was, um, was playing pretty crappy, honestly. Um, and was just kind of, you know, I was pretty stubborn to f- find help. And 14 was probably the worst year because there was no you know, I'd play golf at, at my home course, and I'd lose five, six golf balls around, and mm. and it was just uh, it wasn't fun. And I don't know why it took me so long to find somebody who who would help. I you know I've it takes me a while to kind of trust people too, and that's pretty. Uh, personal part of, of who I am is my golf swing. So it took some time. I was playing a lot of moonlight tour. Those were like one day events in Orlando where you kind of, you pay a hundred bucks and you show up and the winner can get up to 500 bucks depending on the field size. But um, and uh, those will get 25, 30 guys. Uh, but you know, those were just kind of reps to, to get going and play West Florida tour uh, Monday qualifiers. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a grind. It wasn't pretty. Did you see success with the first swing coach that
0: you visited with? Or what was that process like? Did you have to go through a number of them to find somebody that you worked
1: well with? Um, no. The the first swing coach I've really had was the one that I'm currently with, okay. Dan Caraher. I started working with him last year at the end or at, in uh, April of 2017. Um, so I, up until then, I'd seen progress. And I, but I was just kind of like kind of throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what stuck for those, you know, Two years or whatever. So you tunnel. kind of fought your way out of it on your own in, to, in to 2014. Okay, to right. an extent, and I started to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, and I was playing a little bit better. But um,
2: during that that time, was there was it for like were you very convinced that you wanted to continue on this path? Was there ever doubt that you wanted to play professional golf at any point?
1: <sighs> yeah, I mean, there was always the love for the game, and that's what I always wanted to do. As since I was a kid, six seven years old, um, and so it's always what I wanted to do. But in the back of my head at times, sure, I was just like, you know, maybe I'm not cut out for this. You know, maybe I had this good junior career and solid college career and, and uh, this is my undoing. And, you know, because of my stubbornness or whatever, I'm not able to push through to the next level. And, you know, you see guys that you grew up with in junior golf and, you know, and and college golf or whatever, and they're having success and you're like, man, you know, what's the difference? And um, so... Now you know, people
2: are looking at you, probably the opposite side, I'm wondering the same thing. Yeah, I guess maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just find it interesting because you noted okay, you noted there that in April twenty seventeen is kind of when you started working with with Dan, but you turned pro or uh, I guess so. Last March, you pl- I looked this up on your official your official World Golf Ranking page. You played in the Barclays Kenya Open. You finished t forty one, and you ended the week uh, ranked one thousand one hundred forty second in the world. And sixteenth month sixteen months later, you're ranked sixty second in the world. So something happened in that period of time, where I mean, because it's one thing to kind of come out of school and and take a, like a, maybe a year to break through, but you were probably four years removed from school before, like almost like a post hype sleeper breakout. So, what the hell changed in in that time period to make that kind of leap?
1: Post hype sleeper breakout. Yeah, that's yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah, I uh, I know it was um, yeah. I mean, it was right after I got back from Kenya. I had to take a hard look at my game because I at the end of twenty sixteen I missed my European tour card by one. And so I played all right and uh for six rounds and and the very next week I got my first European tour start in Australia. Played okay, came in fifteenth, I think, or sixteenth, something like that. And I was like, Okay, maybe I can ready I'm ready to kick some ass on the challenge tour next year. And I started out in Kenya and it was just like I, I remember the last round, I shot one under and I think I had nine or 10 wedge shots, like inside 120, 130 yards, and I was inside of 30 feet once. And, and I shot one under, so you look at the scorecard, and you're like, okay, well, it's not bad, he's not making triples and quads, but like, I was like, dude, like, come on, there's, there's so much more in the tank. And so I went back, I was home for the entire month of April, and uh, back here in Jacksonville, and I started working with Dan like two days after I got back. And, uh, and just worked on some changes. Pretty much had the whole month to grind on it. Went, uh, went to Orlando a few times. Played some Moonlights. Played some Florida Pro Golf Tour, which is another mini tour. That's not glamorous. Um, and uh, you just you got to kind of work on stuff for three days, four days. Go test it out in competition. Come back. Get the feedback. And, and go from there. And it was kind of like a four-week process. And then finally I went over to Portugal at the beginning of May last year. And uh, that was like a co-sanctioned event between the challenge and the European and I came in second. And then um, two weeks later, I won a challenge event and it kind of, propelled the rest of my summer.
2: So how did you, and then yeah, later that summer you win a European tour event in Denmark. How did you, I think you were the first person to ever win a challenge tour event and a European tour event in the same year. So how did you get into the field that week? Was it an exemption or did you kind of get a battlefield promotion from the challenge tour? How'd that work?
1: I think it was actually the first until yesterday or last week until McAvoy won in, uh, in Germany. But oh, okay. um, he, uh, no, I got into Denmark just through my category. So I ended up missing the full card by one. But through the category, you still get into probably seven or eight European tour events. Just it goes down the list. And um, and there was a challenge tour event that week in Switzerland, which is like a no-cut event. It's called the Rolex Trophy. Um, you get treated great. Uh, the winner gets a Rolex, I gonna say, which man. I still don't have. <coughs> <laughs> and um, uh, and uh, I don't even wear a watch. I just look at my phone. Um, and... Uh, so I, it was kind of a debate because it's only like a 40 man field in Switzerland. And, and I was like, you know, which one should I play? Because, you know, obviously I want to shoot for the top, get my world ranking up as high as I can. But, or should I focus on finishing out the challenge tour season number one and, and you know, going through that route? And finally, I was like, you know, I, uh, you know, Dion Waiters always said, you know, if you gotta, you gotta bet on yourself and then double down. So uh, I said, you know what, let's let's shoot for it. And so we played in Denmark, and I was home for three weeks before that, so I had good prep time. And, uh, and yeah, game felt really good and ended up winning that week. So it was great.
2: And now you're kind of battling the same kind of questions, I think, between the European tour and the PGA tour, cause you're getting spot starts really on the PGA tour, but what is that really building towards? So what is kind of your thought process for how you choose? I mean, are you basically playing any PGA tour event you can get in at this point, or how do you choose your balance between the two?
1: Well, right now, I think this fall is going to be interesting because I have, uh, you know, I've played all the the Rolex series events in the Europe and European tour, and uh quite a few other ones um but when uh, like i'm in the pga next week and and then i'll have the web finals after that if if i get my pga tour card through those web finals it's going to be kind of an interesting uh balancing act because obviously i'll be a pga tour rookie but i'll be in the three race to dubai events at the end of the year turkey um ned bank and dubai and those are huge world ranking points great fields no cut you can't skip those (laughs) It's, well, it's tough to miss those and, uh, you know, limited field events. But at the same time, you know, I want to be based in the U.S. And I'm an American and my whole life is here. So it's it's just kind of going to be a kind of a balancing act a little bit. So
0: with reflection, you know, you, you said when you were kind of in the wilderness a little bit, you were, you were wondering what the difference was. Uh, with some time to reflect, what would you say the
1: difference was? You know, I think a lot of people, they put a lot of emphasis on, as kids come out of college, they need to learn how to be a pro and then need to learn how to handle themselves and be without a team or a college coach or whatever. And I think that's great for them. But I think for me, it was just a purely mechanical thing. It wasn't any, um, it's not like I was getting ahead of myself on the course or I was getting frustrated or impatient. I mean, a little bit maybe, but I'd say the, the big majority of my problems were coming from mechanical issues and so I just needed someone one that I could trust because trust is you know it's, it's a, to trust somebody you hear stories about all the time how swing coaches can you know get in the way you know especially like shorter players they try to get longer and then they end up losing everything and you know they start back to square one it's a long process um, so you know that's that was something I was pretty reluctant to kind of go through. But at the same time, I was pretty much at you know at the bottom of a of a pretty deep well. So I kind of um, I had to do something, and it just it took me a while to kind of <laughs> light the fire under my ass and, and do it. And and then it was it seems like it was a little bit incremental.
0: I mean, it it wasn't necessarily like a a, a sudden breakthrough. It, it was a little bit out of a time testing competition, come back, refine, you know, testing competition. Yeah,
1: totally just yeah Yeah, totally incremental. i mean it's definitely not uh and that's uh, for me that's how i've always done it you know you start to you see like a little bit of a breakthrough and then you're like okay well i did that really well but maybe my um I wasn't as patient as I should have been. If I was as patient as I should have been, I probably would have won that thing running away or, uh, you know, just little things like that. Or, you know, I I needed to fix my practice swing. my practice swing wasn't the way it should have been to get me feeling the right things to go to make that change on the course on a tough tee shot or something like that. So you have these little things that you find and then you kind of plug them back in at the next week. And, um, so yeah, very much trial and error.
2: Randy's a bit in the wilderness right now. He's just trying to claw. Yeah. He's trying to claw out of it. I can't I'm, tell. <laughs> I'm
0: scratching notes over
1: here. Yeah, appreciate <laughs> it.
2: How many? How do you have a count? Do how many countries have you been to?
1: Last year I went to 17. Um, this year I, I haven't. Uh, I haven't looked at the tally yet. But last year was 17.
2: How many passports have you been through?
1: Uh, so I went through my my normal sized one last year. So in December I got a, a 52 pager. So I'm. Uh, <laughs> working on that but i think that'll be a little while before i go through that
2: i gotta be honest before i was going through your page i didn't know that there was a challenge tour event in kenya like just hearing you tell the story of like yeah i'm in kenya and my wedge game's not dialed in is like our oh, professional golf world is insane yeah it's so nairobi. incredibly Nairobi's a
1: hell of a place man it's...
2: Nairobi is what uh we yeah. had i when i was in africa i had a kenyan tour guide who i was like what's nairobi like is it nice he goes "Nairobi, no
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it's 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 an experience it's i've never seen i was there for 10 days and i uh we stayed in the city and got shuttled back and forth to the course and didn't see one stop sign didn't see one traffic light um it How was, do intersections work? You just go. You just kinda gun it and <laughs> whoever has the bigger pair wins out, you know? <laughs> True gladiator battle, really. It's Ah, uh, yeah. We were are you not entertained? We were definitely entertained. Um what's yeah.
2: of all the places you've been between the challenge tour European tour, what is what's the place that you're you'd be fine not going back to?
1: Um I think once in Kenya is all right yeah. for me. Um you know, I, I think the people are very nice and and the culture is great and everything but uh, it's just it's it's a lot it's a lot different it's probably
2: something that you enjoyed experiencing and are fine not going back to but yeah, yeah. well you're like, also not looking to go back to the challenge tour i don't think right as well. yeah, so. that's not in the, in the plan so was it an easy decision for you for this fall to go forward with the web finals versus staying out on the european tour i mean it sounds like i guess what is the main appeal for playing the european tour from your regard i, mean, I know brooks has had success going that route peter uline as well was that kind of just a, a bit more cultured experience i guess playing the european tour than going out and trying to play the web tour
1: Partly, but I think more of it was I saw how many, you know, like in my case, I ended up missing um, my my Q School card at, in Europe. I won. If I was in that stage, if I was in that exact same position in the web, the amount of world ranking points that I would have been exposed to are just so much more in Europe. Um, hmm. And, you know, I, I get it. I, w- I have full challenge tour to status. I know you're, you're, you got a little smirk on your face. <laughs> you're going to go with your Norin conspiracy theories. Um, the amount of challenge tour events, I would, I would add full challenge tour status. So all of those have 12 points. And then I would have gotten, like I said, like I did in Denmark, uh, seven or eight European tour events, which are all at least 24 points. Um, and on the web, I think most of the events have 14 points available. But if I missed my web cart, my full web status by one, I'm getting in those last minute. I, I can't set a schedule. I, you know, I don't know. I'm doing Mondays. I'm, you know, kind of in the right, you know, not where I want to be. So, no man's land. um, just the opportunity was, was a little bit, I felt like the ceiling was a little bit higher to kind of crash the party. And I feel like I kind of did. Mm-hmm.
2: Was it a realistic goal for you this year to try to earn special temporary membership on the PGA tour?
1: Yeah, it was. And I didn't I definitely didn't have the start that I wanted to. Um I uh, I had those three early starts at Tory, Phoenix, and Pebble and uh I had a little bit of an injury over Christmas and New Year's where I was kind of sidelined for about 3 weeks and I only had about 5 days really to practice before Tory and um and you know, it was uh it wasn't ideal. I was definitely a little rusty and and uh you know, I was there was that on the line. There was also just trying to get in the top 50 before the masters before the players which for me is like a fifth major having grown up here in this area so that you know all that was kind of on the line and i was pushing it i was kind of playing a lot of events and with not a whole lot of preparation and 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 so i remember in march after missing the cut in india i was like i just need to stay home and get my game together because this isn't any fun i'm you know however many thousand miles from home and i'm shooting in over par and i don't really know what i'm doing so um you know, I think in the future, instead of chasing those deadlines, I need to make sure that my game is up to the task of performing.
2: What is kind of your rule or a guideline for when you come home? Like you're tra- when you're traveling for the European tour, if you have one week off, do you come home for that week or do you try to run three weeks in a row being home? How's that work?
1: Um, no, I. Tr- if I have one week off, I'll, I'll st- stay out there. Um, it's just a lot. I mean, you go five, six hours, time change, you takes as it is probably two days for me. If you really try at it to get adjusted, then it takes probably another day and a half or two once you go back. So that's four days that you're kind of like just laying around and limbo. Yeah. Comatose pretty much. So I, uh, then once, once you're that, like how much time do you actually have to practice? You lose time when you go back to Europe from here. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if it's more than one week, then I will come back. If it's two weeks, I'll totally come back, um, and that's what I've done in the past. I've spent off weeks, and I have a buddy from college who lives in Slovenia. Uh, spent a week there last year. Um, awesome. Spent a week in Dubai last year practicing and. We in Ljubljana,
0: Ljubljana. Yeah, have you been? I've been.
1: Have you been to Lake Bled? I have. Oh yeah. my God, one of the prettiest places. Slovenia I've ever seen. is
2: like way under the radar. Eastern it's, Europe is unbelievable. First but if, of all, if
1: you call that Eastern Europe to him, he will he'll slap you in the face. He says Central Europe because okay. it's closer to italy yeah so he calls right. that central south central i guess they do know?
2: they do share a border there i guess a little <laughs> bit with italy but that place like all those countries all the old yugoslav countries are just uh, incredible to awesome visit these so nice. much
1: history i mean the downtown's ljubljana like a little river that kind of goes through it and all the buildings there's castles that light up at night it's it's a pretty pretty cool place we've had some fun nights there
2: I, yeah, well i don't want to say eastern europe again but everyone that always asks for advice on where to go in europe I'm like Paris, Rome, that's cool, but go to like Prague, go to Budapest, go to Croatia, like that's where where the real fun I think is. So yeah, that's sure. why I was always wondering if you, if you take a week off in Europe, do you just go around touring a little bit or do you practice most of the time or the yeah. tour's not in Europe that much anyways, right. but how do you, how do you spend your time on the off weeks? I have always curious.
1: About uh, yeah. I mean like, you know, those two off weeks definitely come to mind Slovenia. We were, uh, it was myself, Dylan Fratelli and my buddy, Tim Gornick who went to Duke with me. Um, and uh, so Dylan had just won in Austria. So we had a, we had a good time right after that. Um, actually on the drive to Slovenia, he bought me like a, no, no, no. We went to McDonald's. That was the first meal. And he was like, Oh no, they don't take American express. Julian, can you cover this? I'm like, dude, are you serious? That they take American express in Slovenia. <laughs> I was like, first of all, this sounds like complete bullshit, but second of <laughs> all, it's okay. I'll, I'll take care of it. And then, uh, no. So that we went out a couple of nights and then, yeah, I mean, we were practicing, we were grinding for the most part and we'd, we'd sightsee a little bit. They did a swim from the shores of, Lake Bled to that little castle in oh, the middle yeah. of the lake, which I'm not a That's strong swimmer. That's not an easy so swim. I'm not a strong swimmer, so I just kind of laid by the <laughs> – I just did my thing, <laughs> evened out my tan lines. But, um, but yeah, that was – it was it was fun. I mean, went to the gym, you know, did normal yeah. stuff I'd do at home. Dubai, definitely a lot of sightseeing because there's so much to see. I was there in October, so um, it was uh, – that place is, is nuts. It's so cool. I, I don't know if –
0: Uh, this is the appropriate time but I was I was just curious kind of rewinding back to your high school and and uh you know junior days how it was you got to Duke and and what that experience was like um you know playing the college game
1: yeah no I mean I think uh Duke was you know probably the furthest north I was looking to go out of Jacksonville as far as schools and and uh but the uh, you know the academic academic reputation was you know incredible and and uh, once I got there on campus like it just it has a special feeling. Even now I just watched this uh, this sort of doc- documentary uh, with Jay Williams uh, called Best Shot, and he took these high school kids from New Jersey down to Duke and to a to a basketball game, and uh, just seeing like them walking around campus and like them going to a basketball game, and then like you know eating in the in you know in the in the student union and going to the mcdonald's and everything like it just brings back so many memories it's just like a special place for me and uh, playing college golf was 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 a great experience you know it's first time away from home i think it's something that a lot of kids need and i definitely needed that grow up a little bit do my own laundry you know learn how to pack a suitcase by myself and stuff like that but um it was a great experience we had a full national we played all over the country kind of learned how to how to fly how to how to manage a little bit of jet lag not quite you know european or all Asian jet lag, but, um, and, uh, no, I, I had a blast. I mean, a lot of my best friends, um, come from those four years that I had there. what did you study while you were at Duke? I majored in history, U S history. i okay. got like a certificate in markets and management. So it's like a, in between a major and a minor.
2: Cool. Is this where, uh, where you showed all your European friends, a Chappelle show? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had to enlighten them. We had to. Let's see. We had just Napoleon Dynamite was on the list. Chappelle Show was on the list. Um, you know the the reporter going ghetto that was on the list. Just a lot, a lot of YouTube. Uh,
2: you almost, you got a bit watches. a bit triggered today. We were uh, here with Clint here, the the pro at Tim McQuana, and you hit a, a putt on the putting green. He had these this little red ball that it's like a weighted ball that it's like to test your impact uh, your impact position and whatnot you had a couple of squirrely putts with the red ball well, you got out to that first green and you were a bit triggered
1: by the uh the effect this had on you you're gonna be all right for the pga next week it, it, yeah i think i'll be able to recover you know i think being on bent grass and uh knowing the feel of that will be just fine red balls <laughs> cocaine in a can, baby. A can. <laughs> um,
2: so going back to your win in denmark so you you shot around 64 to win that day i think i was kind of curious as to how Going to that final round, how much of it did it feel like you had a big expectation on yourself to win, and how different did that day feel to, like, the French Open this past year where you had a great chance to win as well? What, how do you When you think back to those two days, what was similar and what was different?
1: Um, I think similarities between the two. I was, def, I was both, both the times I was chasing. Um, I was two back, I believe, in Denmark going into Sunday, and I think in France I was quite a few more back. I was, like, four-ish. Um so so Denmark, I was like, I'm in the last group. Um I I have a leg- I'm playing well enough to win this thing. Uh I'm just gonna give it everything I have. And and um you know, I I I'd had some putting struggles early on in Thursday and Friday. I had a bunch of three putts, like four or five three putts in those two days and and I knew if I just kinda um just played my game and kept hitting it as solid as I was. Um it was going to fall my way. I just got to keep pushing, putting pressure on him and stay stay patient. Um, I guess all that's really similar to France, too. France is just a freaking tough-ass course, um, and guys are going to make mistakes. And even though I knew I was four back or whatever I was, I don't even know what I was. Uh, I think everyone was at least three back going into the final I round. I was at five under going into Sunday, and I don't even know who was leading. Wood, maybe? Or Ken Holt? Ken Holt was winning. Yeah. Um, I th- he must have been nine or ten. But I think um, – I knew, honestly, that can be made up in two holes out there. And so guys are going to make big numbers. Again, the day before, I just had a bogey free um, two under, I believe. And I probably could have shot seven or eight lower. I just didn't make a putt outside of four feet. Um, so I guess it was a little bit similar in those approaches. But I also knew I was, I was, it was a comfortable pairing uh, playing with JT on Sunday there. And you know he's somebody that I've known for a long time, since junior golf, college golf, all that. Um, so even though people might've thought, oh, you know, the crowds with this, or that, whatever, um, the crowds are great. I mean, I enjoyed it. You know, I, we, I think we both birdied, uh, I think he bogeyed one, but we both birdied two. We both hit it inside of three feet there. And, um, and from then on, I was like, you know, this is, this is fun. You want to yeah. be with the top, I think he was two, number two in the world at the time, um, like this is how you want to be in this environment and you know on a on a really difficult golf course the tests all part of your game it was just like kind of spurred me on a little bit
2: it's got to i mean you got to wonder, you know, you want your future, you hopefully is on the PJ tour and kinda of, it's gotta be cool to see where you measure up. Like right, you're playing with one of the top players in the world and you beat him on that day.
1: Yeah, no, it's fun. Actually these last five weeks I had a lot of cool experiences like that. I played with uh the week before in Germany. I played with Tommy Fleetwood the last day and and uh, then I played with JT there. I played with Rory in Ireland the week later and then in Scottish I played with one of my I missed the cup, but I the first two days I played with one of my childhood heroes, Ernie Els. And that was like a little bit surreal. How He's, great is that? Uh, I mean, he told me the real airplane stories that won't go on the air. But oh, uh, we're
0: cutting
2: this short because <laughs> so you are gonna to tell that uh, hear some of Um uh,
1: No, but he was—I uh, mean, just great guy. And and then uh, at the British, you know, it was uh, oh, sorry—at the Open on Sunday, I played with uh, Lee Westwood, which is another guy I've watched since I was a kid, and and so just kind of really cool experiences to play with guys you know the first couple weeks that are really playing really well right now and their primes and you know it's great for me to compare my games but then the last two weeks to play with guys that I've grown up watching and it's just like who always seemed a little bit you know surreal to me yeah
2: you got into the open with that runner-up finish in France so what was it uh yeah this was your second major you played the open the year before was making the cut in a major a big deal for you was making it to the weekend was that uh a celebrated thing on your end
1: uh it is when you shoot three over on thursday yeah. um <laughs> it was uh it, it was more the way i grinded it out on friday yeah. because um you know I, I knew i needed to play well friday to, to make the cut and then um you know especially having my dad there and i had a couple friends from jacksonville who also came um i didn't want them to come just watch two days that sucks sure. so I uh you know it was it was the way I grinded it out I didn't make too many bogeys I, and I ended up birdieing 18 at Carnoustie uh you know knowing I was right there in the mix either on the line or one in and you know there's a lot of things as we all know that can happen on the 18th at Carnoustie um some big numbers have been made so you know I it was I'm aware of all that obviously and uh for me to birdie to hit it to 4 feet and and, and make that putt was i think bigger than just making the cut but it was how i performed under that uh sort of under
2: knowing the you needed to do it yeah, kind of passing exactly. that test what's it like to play the weekend of a major championship how different is the buzz from what you're used to it's yeah. awesome it's
1: it's incredible it's uh it's it's something that i i, I kind of wish i could do like every week yeah you know and then especially i, I made a little bit of a run there sunday I was playing really well. I was 300 through 16 and had an unfortunate finish with a double and a bogey. But I, I think I got up close to the top 10 there, and uh, you could definitely see some people sort of accumulate, and especially on those back nine holes. And and uh, and and I was still hitting good shots, and and you know, that's what you want to test yourself under those sort of conditions and those sort of. Um, that sort of environment and it was just as it is I fell in love with Carnoustie last time last year I played it at the the Dunhill and it was totally different conditions but you can see how this is just a major championship venue and it's just a overall great test and you know you you finish and you're like you're depleted because that's it just exhausts every part of your game and I feel like that's what a golf course should be Mm -hmm. um and, uh, and with it playing firm and fast, there's so many more variables up in the air. So um, for me to kind of make that run and keep executing shots the way I did, I, I was pretty uh, pretty happy with, with where my game was at. Because
2: you really didn't have much, any links golf experience before this past three, four-week stretch, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, that Irish Open was, was kind of eye-opening because I knew I was playing well from France. Um, and... Uh, and, you know, I mean, there's so many holes. I hit a good tee shot, gets a screwy bounce, goes in the rough, catch a flyer, go over the green, and all of a sudden I have a 12-footer for par when I feel like I didn't miss a shot. Um, so it, it, that, that's how it is. You have to accept it. It's, it's a different mindset. It's a different approach to the game, and, and you kind of have to just just go play and accept it. Kind of sc-
2: scooted past this, uh, past the French Open, but with the Ryder Cup going to Le Golf National, what's kind of the what's your on the ground report from what that course is like to play and how that will play for a Ryder Cup?
1: I think it'll be a, di- a little different with match play. Um, I, you might have guys trying to play a little bit more aggressively, but there's there's only a limit to how aggressive you can play that place. So um, I, they said it's going to be a very similar setup in terms of green speeds, in terms of rough, uh, as it was a couple weeks ago to the Ryder Cup. Um but you know they 're definitely angling to play for the European favor. I mean, they have the greens a little bit slower. they were running at about a ten probably and and you know they had they made it tighter for the kind of notion that the American guys like to bomb it you know all over the map and then find it so um and, uh, so yeah, I think it's going to be a great venue. The place is built for spectating. There's, you know, all in between all the holes, there's huge mounds and everything like a little bit like uh, Memorial or, or TPC Sawgrass, you know, it's just, it's built for crowds and, and, uh, and yeah, I think it'll be a great, great atmosphere as long as the weather holds up.
2: Was there much of a buzz on the ground from from fans or anything? To feel like for with the with the event coming there, was it a topic of discussion during that week?
1: Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, uh, you know, I think that was uh, that was a, that was a major part. I mean, I, it definitely added to the intrigue of me wanting to play that because you know it's a long stretch leading up to the open, and obviously I wasn't in the open yet. But um, four or five events in a row is a lot, and. Uh, a lot of guys would skip either one of them or, you know, some sort of combination of them to make, to prep for the open. Um, and you know, I kind of put that on my list as like one I can't miss because it is a Ryder cup course. It's going to get a great field. This is where I want to test my game. I know it's a tough course It rewards, really solid ball striking and, and, uh, this is where I want to be. So.
2: After that five-week stretch, you're, you're home here for two weeks. Is two weeks in a row off, is that too long for you? Do you start itching to get back out there, or is, did you need that kind of decompression time after that stretch?
1: No, I definitely needed some time. Uh, five weeks is a lot, and, you know, I was, I was I played pretty well, but I'd also had stuff I needed to work on. And, and so, you know, I, I could take two, three days off and, and kind of rest a little bit, but then uh, I was, I'm ready to get back to, you know, I, at, by the time Friday of last week hit – uh or thursday or friday i was ready to get back to work and then um and then now it's you know i'm a couple days away from leaving for the pga and i'm ready to go compete and you know it's it's, uh it's i I kind of kind of undervalued the the how much rest is is how important that is um i think before last year but uh you definitely need to mentally recharge your batteries and be ready to go especially for a major because you can't be uh pissing shots away I'm
2: just trying not to take that personally that I'm gonna be I need to get out there and compete considering we're still sweating from going out there and playing today a match <laughs> that ended up not being that the way close, you but, were hitting
1: it
2: I have editing capabilities on this end so I can cut all that part out if need be.
1: <laughs>
0: when you are at home what's a what's a typical practice day look like usually
1: um yeah I mean it's uh it's usually involves some sort of uh practice playing and gym um you know I'm pretty pretty diligent with my trainer, Keith McCormick here in Jacksonville. And, and, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a good thing for me. It keeps my energy levels up and I just feel better. Um, and then, you know, I'll work with my coach probably a couple times a week, twice a week, usually when I'm home. And then, um, and then, yeah, just practice at, at, uh, either Sawgrass Country Club or TPC and, and then, uh, try to play wherever I can, see if I can get a couple games going.
0: You seem like you, um, are very, in tune with kind of your thoughts You're, and I, I don't know you, you come across as a very smart guy and haven't gone to Duke it's it's apparent why um I, I'm just curious if you really go about uh setting goals for yourself and um you know kind of what that not necessarily if you don't want to go into like what those goals are but do you set goals for yourself or you know short medium long-term goals or is it more you know hey just put in the work and good things will happen
1: um, no, I definitely do set goals. I mean, at the beginning of last year, you know, like you said, I was ranked at 1100 or whatever, but, uh, you know, I, I at the end of the year, I wanted to get to the top hundred in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I'd seen it done. I think Jordan Smith did it the year before and Brooks did it a couple of years back and, and, uh, but they had done it after winning, I guess Jordan didn't, but, you know, after winning multiple times out there and, and just playing really consistently. And that's, to me, that's the value. That's the sort of hallmark of, of really good, great players is consistency. Um, and that's where I wanted to be. So I was able to achieve that last year, this year I'd set higher goals and, you know, missing out on Augusta and, and the players was kind of a, a bummer for me. Um, but there's still a lot, large part of the year left. And, you know, I just, I want to be consistent, you know, having one good week and then missing, you know, five cuts or, you know, just, it doesn't, uh, you know, I, I want to be in the mix every week. I just want to try to win every week. And, and that's uh, so I definitely have concrete goals that, I, that I'm kind of striving towards. And then all the other um, awards and, you know, all that stuff kind of takes care of itself.
0: Does consistency mean, um, you know, do you have uh, certainly maybe a make cut uh, comes to mind, but, but is there a certain uh, place you want to finish or is consistency more in kind of your approach and how you feel like you're actually playing?
1: It's it's more of a. I, I know
0: the two are very
1: tied together, sure, of course, but but you can't have one without the other. I think you know. I think uh, for example, it's it, a lot of it is a mentality thing that I'm able to grind out a certain round when things aren't going my way, uh, like the Friday at the Open when I was kind of back against the wall, and you kind of feel like things there's like a sort of a tipping point. You find you kind of feel like things can go one way or the other at a certain point, and it's kind of your decision on how you're going to have your attitude be from there on out. And that can dictate a lot of how your result. And so, uh, and for me to, to, to be able to kind of buckle down there when it's my fifth week in a row, when, uh, you know, you could have whatever. Things are going against me. Things are going for me. A lot of that is just perspective. It uh, That's the sort of consistent consistency I want to have every week. And that's, I think, what Tiger has every week and had, especially in his prime. And that's what I think all great competitors in any sport do. You look at Russell Westbrook. He goes out there every game. He tries to, you know, just yeah. gives everything he has. That's the kind of consistency. He's going to lose games. He's going to go 10 for 35, whatever. But he's, he's going to keep keep giving it as all. That's the kind of sort of um, consistency I'm looking for. And you're going to miscut. You're going to, obviously, it's not always going to pan out. You're going to three putt. You're going to do these things. But um, as long as you're kind of mentally there for every part of it and you don't check out, um, that's all you can really ask for.
0: It seems like part of that is learning when those, you know, in the moment, when those moments come, I would imagine. Um, So so just being able to identify, hey, this is kind of a tipping point uh, part of the round. Um, I watch a lot of baseball. It kind of strikes me as the analogy. They say the really good pitchers, you know, they're never going to have their best stuff, but it's learning to compete and get results when you don't have your best stuff. And yeah. I, that's kind of what I was thinking about when you're going through that. Yeah. 100%. So much of
2: golf, especially at your guys' level is not about your good shots. It's about how bad your bad shots are. Or like if you if your average shot is really good, then you're going to score well. But if your average shot is just not, if your average shot is missing the green, like you, that's, that's the cut line. I think yeah. kind of in that, in that world. Is there anything, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a lot of things you that you want to do better and whatnot, but is there anything specifically that stands out to you as, if I want to compete on the PGA Tour next year, I need to do this specific thing better? Is there one thing or anything that have you thought that far ahead?
1: Um, you know, I mean, there's things I want to improve on, you know, quite a bit. I uh, Just going forward in general, um, you know, I feel like my game is, is ready to compete at the PGA Tour, but I think to kind of go to that next level. You know, I, I practice a lot with, with Vijay Singh uh, when, when we're both back home in Jacksonville and he's kind of giving me a lot of advice and, and, you know, on how to keep pushing forward with my game and my career and my ambitions. And, and I think uh, for me, I'd like to be um, a little bit more consistent putting. I think I could be much better, I think. And I think it's not really a mechanics thing. It's just more of a comfort thing. And, and, um, you know, it's, Going from grass to grass, it's uh, a little bit a little bit different, but I think you know I, uh, that's definitely something that I'd because I feel like the rest of my game stacks up pretty well. and probably my wedges also coming in the greens, I could be a little bit more consistent. needs more re- those red balls red balls although I was throwing darts out there against you today maybe yeah. you bring out the best in me yeah I don't you know. were uh, you gave some uh,
2: some I think Mark the, the another guy we played with today said you gave a Ryder Cup stare at me after rolling in a long birdie <laughs> on 17 which I like made six on that hole you beat me by three on the hole you ah, didn't need to stare me down
1: blood. I'm like a great white the smell of blood you know it just kind of keeps me oh
2: god Got deep in my ass today um you just mentioned vj i was curious if there are any other veterans kind of that have mentored you either on the euro tour or any any guys that you kind of lean towards on, on on that side
1: um not no not probably not really um who are know, some
2: of your better friends on the european tour
1: um dylan Fratelli, who i mentioned before mm-hmm. we're in a pretty much the exact same position now we're playing the pga and then uh doing the web finals so we've got very similar world rankings i've seen him at probably almost every event that i've played this year in the u.s or in europe um eric van Rooyen, uh he's another really nice guy so another south african guy um went to college in the states and and as an american wife and so we usually kind of hang out have dinners and uh spend quite a bit of time together getting back to vj uh i was watching last night the
0: fiji uh, fiji championship fiji international um he was hitting cross-handed wedges from about 80-90 yards, I was. Really? Yeah, I was
1: curious if he'd you'd seen him working on that on the range at all. I'd seen him that, yeah. He's he's, he's unbelievable. He's he's 55 years old and the way he he works at it and practices is unlike any I've never seen a 25-year-old work like that. <laughs> you see him hit the stuff. It's not like he's hitting it for the first time. He's worn out wedges, just hitting cross-handed pitches and, and chips. And I didn't realize he'd hit it at 80, 90 yards. That's pretty far. But, uh, I mean, he, he hits these things off downhill lies on grainy Bermuda over a bunker and nips them to, you know, inside of four feet. So it's, it, the guy's, you know, he's incredible. And I, have you know, I have a lot of respect for, I feel like a movie could be made or a book could be made very easily about his life. And I don't think he's, he's probably opened up enough t- for that to happen, but, um, would
2: he be a good podcast guest?
1: Maybe if he kicks your ass before, I don't know. Like <laughs> getting in a better mood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: uh, all right. I'm going to end this with a, uh, unless Randy has more questions after this, but this is a, admittedly a tough question and not something I've, I've ever asked somebody on the pod. I don't think before, but, if you're to sketch it out now goal-wise what's a reasonable goal, a career comp like a player that if you said i'd have if i'd have their career i'd be very satisfied like when you when you're all said and done if i had so-and-so's career i'd be i'd be satisfied
1: man right i've never i've never even thought about that that's funny because i think you know i see duke basketball players all the time and i uh you always compare them to like nba players like oh brandon ingram's like a kevin Durant or uh you know people were saying Kyrie's going to be like a i don't know like a Jason kid which you know Kyrie's filthy. but um you know I, I think uh wow that's a tricky one you know i, I it's
2: hard cuz you don't want to you don't want to say like Phil and people think you're an idiot or you don't want to set for the goal too shirts, low. right yeah.
1: yeah so i think uh, you know <laughs> although he looks like Neo in the Matrix now on those com- on that commercial i think um, you know, honestly, it's hard to compare, and I don't like to do that. I, right. I, I just want to get, uh, you know, I heard, I think it was Kobe who said, you know, I just want to squeeze every, if if my career is an orange, I just want to squeeze every bit of juice out of it that I can. And um, and that's what I want to do. I want to put everything I have while I'm able to do it into it and just get feel like I didn't leave anything behind. Um, and whether that's, you know, ditching toxic relationships or, you know, just trying new things or, you know, like I said, finally working with an instructor, you know, that I feel like I can trust, just things like that. I think um, I don't want that stuff to kind of get in the way of of what I'm trying to do. That's a well-trained
2: answer. That's much better than actually listing out a name. I wasn't trying to bait you, but I just think that's an interesting kind of question.
0: I I got two rapid-fire ones. Who's your favorite Duke basketball player?
1: Uh, Man, I'm freaking – I love watching Kyrie, and I know he played there for like 30 seconds, but uh, Ky- he's my favorite player to watch in the NBA right now. Okay. What's your favorite period of U.S. history? Uh, <laughs> 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 this is going back into the memory banks. Uh, you know, I took a class on the 1960s, it was just the 1960s, and I thought it was fascinating. And, you know, I was genuinely interested. I mean, I I wrote my final paper about Arnold Palmer and and, uh, his influence on golf and TV and sports in general and, um, you know, I didn't get a good grade on it because I think I went way off topic, but I think uh, or maybe I just can't write good. Julian, well. the topic is the presidential election this year. <laughs> no, but it was just so much going on. I mean, you had JFK's assassination, you had Bobby Ketty running for president, you had the Vietnam War going on all the all the the Pentagon papers. the Nixon thing was kind of going. Starting to come around. Um, you, you had uh, all the sort of the the fight for women's equality, the racial tensions, uh, MLK, the whole his, him getting assassinated. Um, you had a lot of LGBT movements. I mean, there's just so much to cover. It was it was honestly, I mean, all those issues we only spent probably like two weeks on. You probably could have spent a class on any one of those issues, and I thought that was just so much, so much going on. Um, And I feel like, honestly, we're at a point in time now where a lot of those issues are resurfacing and and uh, we could be kind of seeing history sort of repeat itself in the next few years. Yeah. uh,
0: Last question, I promise. Uh, You have a lot of downtime traveling, I imagine, uh, from here to Europe and back and whatnot. Are you a guy? Are you, are you a Netflix guy? Are you? Uh, do you like to
1: read? How do you? How do you like to pass your time? I try to read, but the read is like a. It's like a. You know, who needs sleeping pills when you? Uh, sometimes when you have some of these books, I uh, no. I, I I enjoy some Netflix. I enjoy watching comedy stuff, funny stuff. I, I watch a lot of animated shows, animated movies. Uh, like Zootopia, I thought was f- hilarious. I've seen that like four times on planes. Rom-coms, I like Crazy Stupid Love. I've seen like fifteen times um uh, modern family has me cracking up all the time curb your enthusiasm yeah uh i I got into game of thrones for a little bit but i just kind of lost lost interest it's just uh, i don't know i I like to feel good when i watch something (laughs) because you know golf can be a hard game to you know especially when watching someone's games like you know one of your games oh my god um you know, it's uh, a little pick me up is always good. I enjoy watching the. Fun- oh, uh, Veep! Veep is one of the. I literally, I'm dying when I'm watching Veep. It's so funny. Well, that's all. I, I well, could. Do you
2: have a go to Chappelle's? What's your favorite Chappelle skit of all time?
1: <laughs> um, I got to gloss over one that I can't say, but I, I think, uh, man, you know the.
2: <laughs> it's hard to rank up there. You could, you could, I could eight different days i might say eight different skits
1: yeah you know i just i just watched on youtube the trading spouses and uh when i forgot T-Mart. the mart yeah <laughs> team mart um and uh you know when he's like who the p- is when rené zelweger <laughs> We watched the, uh, the
2: mad real when uh, oh, mad the real world, the, uh, the uh, broadcast kept talking about all the guys staying in one house together at Carnoustie. We said, unless it's the mad real world <laughs> recreated, we don't care about this house at all. And we we watched that skit. Those things hold up just perfectly. They, there's nothing like a, a, there's nothing like you know, other than clothing that's like a time period of from that from those kids. It wasn't that long ago, but man, they still play really well today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I find myself, you know, I, I especially in the winter, you know, my elbows get ashy and I call myself Ashy Larry sometimes. I'm gonna start a fire. <laughs> I'm rich, bitch.
2: We're ending it on that. That's that how really they end the episodes. It. We're yeah. ending on that. So, Julian, thank you for the time, man. Thanks for kicking my ass and uh, we'll do it again soon. And good
0: Absolutely. luck next week in St. Louis.
1: Yeah, thanks guys. Appreciate it. It was Cheers. fun.